Our, our theme this year is uh, following Jesus and recognizing how many times that Jesus commanded uh, individuals and groups to follow me. And so we're going to be looking at that this, this entire year. And in, in uh, considering that topic, um, we're going to end up uh, starting in a couple of weeks, we we'll start looking at the, the book of Hebrews, which talks about that at length, which is really calling uh, for the uh, folks who had been Jews, part of the old covenant, and are now in the new covenant to follow Jesus and, and make that full transition. So we'll spend some time there. But in the process, we're going to be looking at different passages. And, and I thought it was important for us to spend a couple of weeks looking at uh, John 15, where Jesus is talking about the importance of those who follow him bearing fruit. So that's, that's why we're in this passage. So with that uh, introduction, let's, let's read the first two verses. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, you're great. We love you so much. We thank you for the love that you have shown us in Jesus, and that you have called us out of darkness into your light that you have redeemed us through his blood, that you have filled us with your spirit, and that you are committed to work with us to produce good fruit in our lives. Father, as we examine this passage of scripture, we desperately need you to give us understanding and guidance and faith to follow. We pray for our kids and children's worship, Lord, and ask that you'd help them to abandon themselves to you and that they would really grow in their love for you, that you might even use this ministry to bring some of them to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. I want to start out first by just, just drawing your attention to a single word that's used three different times in these first two verses, and that word is fruit. Um, actually, it isn't three times just in verse two um, that uh, Jesus uh, draws attention to fruit. And as we talk about fruit, and we, 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 we recognize, okay, I need to bear fruit, our, our mind may go to a couple different places as to understanding exactly what is fruit. What's the fruit that we're supposed to bear? Um, what, what does that mean? And so um, I, I want us to think about that. And I think there are two different ways in which we can understand the fruit that, that Christ is producing in our lives. The first is that fruit is a good that is produced in our lives that demonstrates God's work in us. A good that's produced in our lives that demonstrates God's work in us. We, we think of this because the first verse that you might go to in, in your mind when you think of fruit is the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. And, and it's right that we should go there because that's uh, definitely a, a part, an aspect of, of what it is to bear fruit as we, we see the fruit that should be in our life as the Spirit is working in us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This list of fruits, if you will, that the, the Spirit produces in our lives is indeed a part of the fruit that Jesus is talking about us bearing. It's, it's a good that's produced in us, and that good in us, when someone has uh, love in their life, we recognize that God has put that in their life, and it demonstrates his work in their life. When someone is patient, we recognize that, that God has brought that good into their life, and he's the one who is producing that. And so it gives glory to God, and, and yet it, uh, and it's a fruit that honors God. 
This is also seen in passages such as Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1, 5 through 11 is a, a great section to look at when we're looking for assurance of our salvation. But in verses 5 through 8, he begins to list specific character traits that are brought into our life as the Spirit is at work, and they are indeed fruit. He says, now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the use of the, the double negative is something we don't necessarily do. It isn't just that it renders you neither unfruitful, but it, it does render you fruitful. That there's fruit that's being born. And the fruit is these characters, uh, character traits which are mentioned in this passage. That you have been diligent in your faith. That you've supplied moral excellence. That you've added knowledge and godliness and kindness and love. And all of these things have been built up in your life as a reflection of the Spirit doing something in your life. The first fruit is that it's a good that is produced in our lives that demonstrates God's work in us. The second aspect of fruit is it is the character of disciples that our influence produces. The character of the disciples that our influence produces. I think we do live in an age that's, that's pretty focused on ourselves, and so it's easy for us to, to focus on ourselves when we start thinking about fruit and say, well, I want to bear fruit, so that's good that's inside my life. But it's also the impact that I have on other people's lives. The influence that I have on other people's lives. People who I am investing in, what is the effect of that? That's the fruit that we also bear in our lives. A couple different passages will, will bear this out. The first is from uh, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 16. Where uh, Jesus says, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. And just saying, what kind of fruit do you expect to come from an apple tree? It's, 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 it's an apple. That's pretty straightforward, right? right? And that, that's why we call it an apple tree. But the, the, the tree isn't an apple, but it produces apples. And so to begin to see that, and so what are we producing in the lives of other people? And Paul speaks of, of one of the fruits of his ministry in the family, the household of Stephanus, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 15, where he says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. He draw, calls out this family, which are his first fruits. This is the fruit of his, his labors. He, you can begin to look at this family of Stephanus, and you know something then of Paul. It is a fruit that he has borne through his ministry. And he talks about that in the character of the disciples that he has influenced. And so that's the second element of fruit bearing. So as we're talking about bearing fruit, I want us to keep, it, keep both parts of that in mind. I want us to think about it on the one hand of, of our own personal growth in reflecting the character of God. But I want to think of it on the other hand in the impact that we're having on other people's lives. By the same token, I want us to think about it individually for my own life and I want us to think about it in the corporate life of providence and of our congregation. 
And so to consider both of these aspects. Now, I, I want to confess that much of my thinking um, uh, on this passage has been influenced by Bruce Wilkinson, um, who wrote a, a little book called The Secrets of the Vine. Um, he wrote an earlier book called The Prayer of Jabez, which created great controversy, which I, I still shake my head at, having read it many, many times and taught it and studied it. And I just don't see the controversy in it. But, but some folks didn't quite understand what he was getting at and, and made more out of it. But The Secrets of the Vine, there was no controversy. It's also less read. Although our women's Bible study, I think, went through it uh, a few years ago. Uh, just a, a great exposition of this section of John chapter 15. And, and Bruce, his, his insight has been very helpful in my own life and my thinking about this passage. And one of the things that he notes in this passage is that in John 15, the first five verses, Jesus talks about four levels of fruit. The four levels of fruit are, he talks about, first of all, that there's no fruit. And then he talks about that there's fruit. And then he talks about more fruit. And then he concludes with much fruit. And the idea is that what Jesus is laying out for us is the pathway to move from no fruit to much fruit, that his desire in each of our lives is that we would bear much fruit. Now, we'll be finishing that up next week as we look at the, the, the much fruit. And what he, what he focuses on is how do you move from no fruit to fruit? How do you move from fruit to more fruit? And that's some of what uh, our passage today is going to be dealing with. Next week, we'll be looking at how do you move from more fruit to much fruit. And so that'll be the, the focal point for next week. Um, so I just want to uh, draw your attention to, the, to this book, encourage you, if, if you want to pick up a copy, uh, it is also available on Kindle, you can get it there, it's just very, very helpful. But what we see from this passage, where Jesus is talking about being the true vine and his father the vine dresser, is that as we follow Jesus, we can bear fruit. And I think that's a hopeful thing, and, and let's look at how we can do that. To do that, we first of all are going to have to understand God's discipline. To understand God's discipline. Now, your, your bulletin says verse 1. That's, that's my error. should say verse 2. So we're really going to focus on verse 2. Uh, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's the first thing that I want us to, to think about. And, and we're going to have to look at this a little bit closely. On, on face value, um, as, as we look at that, it sounds a little bit like if, if, if you're a, a branch that isn't bearing fruit, he's just going to take you and throw you out in the garbage heap, doesn't it? Kind of sounds that way as, at, at first glance. And I want to look at it, and, and if that's what it's saying, that's what we must believe. I'm not sure that's what it's saying. And I think if we look a little closer, we can understand that a little bit better. And the first thing to look at is, he says, every branch in me. Notice that. He doesn't say every branch that doesn't bear fruit. He's very, very specific in saying every branch in me. Okay? He is the vine. He is the life. We read that this morning, that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's how we began our service of just understanding that all life has its foundation in Jesus Christ. He is the heart of that. What does it mean to be in Jesus? He says, every branch in me. What does it mean to be in him? I want to begin by looking at Ephesians chapter 1, at uh, a few verses there, because he uses this phrase, in him, multiple times in the first two chapters of Ephesians. Um, I've counted 23 times in the first two chapters alone that he uses in me or in him uh, or in Christ uh, continually. So, uh, but we're not going to look at all 23 of those. We're just going to look at a few. The, first, uh, and you, the verse won't be up here, uh, but verse 4 will be. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay, so the first thing we see is that we are blessed with all the spiritual blessings 
in the heavenly places when we're in Christ. The second, he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we also know that if we're in Christ, we've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. So not only have, have, have we received all the spiritual blessings, we're also chosen by the Father to be in Christ. And so that's what it is to be in Christ. He goes on in verse 7, and he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that we're forgiven. It means we have redemption. Those who are in Christ, those who are branches, who are in Jesus, have been forgiven of their sins. Is he going to take a person that he has chosen, who he's blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, who has been forgiven of all their sins, and just chuck them out because there's not fruit? That doesn't seem consistent, does it? Add to that verse 13, which tells us even more about being in Christ. And he says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. We are sealed with the Spirit. The Spirit is the seal. The Spirit comes upon us and seals us, secures us, leaves us in Christ, fully in Christ. We can never be taken out of Christ. So that Jesus says in John chapter 6 what the will of the Father is, that Jesus is going to accomplish the will of the Father. He says in John chapter 6 verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, those that he chose to be in him, those who were forgiven, those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So as we begin to understand what it means to take away, we have to understand it doesn't mean he's taking us away to the dump. He isn't taking us to the fire to be burned. Now later on he talks about that, but that's a different thing. Um, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about every branch in me. Meaning, we are in Christ. We are in him and secure. So whatever he's talking about, he's not talking about throwing us away. So what is he talking about when he says he takes away? Well, the Greek word that's translated there as takes away is the Greek word iro. And I believe every other place in the New Testament, when it's translated, it's translated as to lift up. That's what the word means, to lift up or to bear. And it's kind of a, a, a bad translation here. I want to look at some of the passages so we understand a little bit of the usage of this word so that it really secures in our mind the understanding that this means to lift up or to hold, to carry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. Um, we, we read this, and actually it's the, the devil quoting Scripture. That the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up. That's our word. They will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So what Jesus is saying is, the same word that is used to describe how the angels will carry Jesus is used to describe what Jesus will do with that branch that is not bearing fruit. He'll hold it up. He'll secure it. He will provide the stability that it needs. Again, it's, uh, the, the word is used in John chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. And, and this is, uh, speaking of Jesus healing the man uh, who had his pallet, the man couldn't walk. And so Jesus uh, said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet. That's Iro, that's the, the lift up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up 
his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to pick up or to carry your pallet. Same word that's used in all three of those instances is the word iro, meaning to lift up, to bear, to carry. And now Jesus is the same one who, who commanded the man to pick up his pallet, who commanded him, iro, your pallet, who says to us that the branch does not bear fruit, he will iro, he will pick him up, he will bear him, he will carry him. And it's also significant that this man who couldn't walk, Jesus commanded not just to walk, but to have enough strength to get up and to carry the pallet and to walk. And that strengthening that Jesus gave in the midst of that healing is a remarkable, magnificent thing. And I'm sure we're all familiar with Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Verse 28, he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, is what verse 29 says. It's that same word, Iro, to take that yoke, to pick it up, to carry it, to bear it, to sustain it, to strengthen it, to hold it. That's the word that's used in this situation. So what does that mean? So Bruce Wilkinson in his, his book um, had a, a, a vine dresser come up to him and say, do you understand John 15? To which he says, well, not perfectly, no. He says, I do. And he took him out and he showed him what it means. And this is what the vine dresser had to say, particularly about this idea, this iro of lifting up. He says, New branches have a natural tendency to trail down and grow along the ground, he explained. But they don't bear fruit down there. When branches grow along the ground, the leaves get coated in dust. When it rains, they get muddy and mildewed. The branch becomes sick and useless. What do you do, I asked? Cut it off and throw it away? Oh no, he exclaimed. The branch is much too valuable for that. Now we've got to stop. Now picture this from the perspective of God the Father who is the vine dresser. Saying about you who are a branch. The devil will say, not bearing fruit, why don't you just take it out and throw it away? But the Father says, oh no, you're much too valuable for that. And there's a beautiful picture. He says, we go through the vineyard with a bucket of water looking for those branches. We lift them up and wash them off. He demonstrated for me with dark, calloused hands. Then we wrap them around the trellis or tie them up. Pretty soon, they're thriving. That is the picture. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, a branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts it up. He lifts it up and he cleans it off and he attaches it to the trellis, maybe to another branch, that it may be supported and secured so that it will bear fruit. That's the image that's given to us. Now that, that process for the vine, the, the, the branch is falling down into the ground. It's its natural tendency. And the vine dresser has to change that natural tendency, right? He's got to correct the action. He's got to turn the direction that that branch is going. And it's not comfortable to the branch because it's calling on the branch to repent of its tendency to go down. Isn't that an awful lot like us when we come to Christ? What is our natural tendency at that point? To be in the dirt, right? To wallow in the dirt. 
We don't only want to lay in the dust. We want to throw the dust on us and we want to get the moisture and the mud on us. That's where we're happy because that's where we've been. And so what is the Spirit doing? He's lifting us up. He's putting us in a place where we're, we're separated from that just a bit so that we can begin to bear fruit. And it's not always comfortable when He first does it because He's disciplining us. He's disciplining us because we aren't going the direction that we should go as determined by excuse me, the vine dresser. And so we have to make this change. On understanding the discipline that God brings into our lives, we, we need to understand the reason for the discipline. He talks about the, the, the in the seekers of the vine, the, the branch falls down in the ground and is covered with dust. And, and that reminds me somewhat of our lives as we live our lives in this world that we... We, we walk through this world, and the fact is we're, we're faced with temptations all around us, right? We're faced with bad examples. We, we visually see sin repeatedly all around us all the time, and it can begin to weigh upon us. It can begin to weigh upon our souls, and we recognize that, and, and we, we, need to be, we need to be cleansed from that, and it can begin to work upon us, and sometimes what it works upon us is we ourselves fall into sin. And we find ourselves doing things that we ought not to do and not doing things that we ought to do. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 14, asks, what is sin? And the answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That is, it's a want of uh, conformity. It's, it's when, we, when we don't do the things that we're commanded to do. They were commanded to love our neighbor. And when we don't love our neighbor, there's a failure of conforming to the law of God. But it's also when we transgress that law of God, when, when we do the things that we're told we ought not to do. That happens in our lives, and it happens in thought, word, and in deed. And it's not just in, in doing the great big thing. It's most, of, most of our sin are the, the little things that we do or don't do that we find in our heart. It isn't that we walk around and spit in our neighbor's face, but it's that we walk around and, and, and we judge them in our heart, and we're critical of them. And that's where that, that unlovingness finds its way in our own heart and we're violating the law of God and that gets attached to us. And as we, as we allow it to stay attached to us, it begins to, to create problems in our life and it begins to, to uh, if you will, cover us up with the dust and the mud so that we can't produce fruit. Do you remember the scene in John chapter 13 that Jesus is together with the disciples and they're about to have the, the Last Supper and no one is thought to wash the other's feet. And so Jesus gets out and washes their feet. And he comes up to, to Peter, and Peter is, is, is common for him. He says, not, not me, Lord. You'll never wash my feet. He says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you've got no part of me. He says, then wash all of me, Lord. And Jesus is like, oi. <laughs> I think he said that a lot with Peter. But anyway, and, and he begins to explain to Peter. He says in, in chapter 13, verse 9, Simon Peter, uh, in verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. He says, Peter, you've already been cleaned. I've forgiven your sins. But you know, as you've been walking through this world, your, your feet have gotten kind of gross, right? They smell, right? As someone said of, of Lazarus, they stinketh. Right? To, because you've got to say it, King James. But anyway, that, that recognition. Now, I ministered in Arizona for a number of years. I, I know the Vons will understand when I talk about Sandalfoot. There are very few things in this world that are as vile as feet that have been in sandals all day long. 
And uh, I, would, I would lead a youth group, and, and the kids, you know, they'd be out in their sandals and been on them all day, and they, they come in and they take off their sandals, they sit down, and we sit cross-legged, and, and we talk, and they're rubbing their feet, and then they say, let's pray. I don't mind the praying part, but those reaching out for your hands are a little bit uh, a concern. Let's go wash our hands, and then we'll pray. Because cause even as you're just sitting there, you kind of get the smell. It's kind of like, ugh. It's just gross, right? Because why? Are the kids all, do they need to all take baths? No! They just need to wash their feet. Well, that happens to us. We don't need to be, to, to be completely reconverted, right? We just need to confess and repent the sins that kind of fall upon us, that, we, that we, we, we walk in from time to time, and there needs to be that change that has to take place because those sins, as they attach themselves to us, block our ability to bear fruit. Matter of fact, uh, David writes about that in uh, Psalm 32. And think about this as he just describes what it's like when we, when we don't confess our sins. And he, he, verse 1, he says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's where he starts. But uh, as he goes on in verse 3, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Have you experienced that in your life? That discipline of God, that, that when I'm keeping silent about my sin... God's Spirit is bringing conviction into my heart. And he says, my body wasted away. Maybe he began to, to fall into just kind of a, 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 a dark time in his life. Verse 4, he says, for day and night your hand, your hand, God's hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And we experience this as a part of what the, the discipline of God looks like in our life, that he can, he can bring these pressures upon us. We, can be in, we walk, we walk uh, into walls all the time. We find ourselves continually facing uh, difficulties and hardships. And we see in like 1 Corinthians, sometimes sickness is a discipline of God. Sometimes death is a discipline of God, as he brought that within the Corinthian church. We can be facing these different things. We begin to wonder, is this a, a discipline in my life? And, and I don't know. And, and he's leading us then to, to confess our sin when it is a discipline. In verse 5 he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. And he began to understand what God had been doing. And the, the discipline that had come upon him revealed to him his sin and invited him to confess and to repent, and that the two go together, that he confesses his sin, that he might repent. And in that comes the cleansing that he needed in his life. So understanding uh, God's discipline, that the reason for discipline is that he's wanting to produce fruit in us, and our sin blocks that fruitfulness. And what's the purpose of discipline? Well, why do we discipline our children? I have to confess that my life growing up, my father in particular would discipline me for his own convenience. I was to be quiet because he wanted it quiet. I was to do something because he didn't want to. And, and that was the basis of the discipline. And so it was rather arbitrary and just kind of happened at different times. And I just want to say, that's horrible. <laughs> that's not why we discipline our children. We discipline our children for two reasons. Number one, to teach them. And number two, to protect them. We discipline them to teach them. This is why we teach our children good manners, is it not? Because they're going to be a part of society. And in society, we don't want a society that has no civility to it, do we? We don't want a society where there aren't good manners, 
that are practiced where people don't say please or thank you or, or smile at one another. That's awful. And so we discipline our children to teach them that, to teach them good manners so that they be a successful part of society. And so society will be better. And so we teach them. That's a part of our discipline. And we may have to discipline them in order to teach them those manners. And sometimes they may have to sit in the corner for a little while until they can learn to say please, right? We also teach them to protect them, do we not? We we might flick the child's hand as they're reaching up for the stove. Why do we do that? Because we really don't want them to ever reach up to that stove when it's hot and they end up burning their hand. We want to teach them to protect them. And so we discipline to teach and to protect. And isn't that exactly why God disciplines us? To teach us and to protect us. Consider Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, in which God told Adam and Eve about the tree that was in the middle of the garden, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, don't eat that. Why? He didn't say, don't eat that because I'm saving it for someone else, right? He says, don't eat it because in the day that you eat it, what will happen? You'll die. He's saying, Adam and Eve, this isn't good for you. And so he teaches them and trains them at the same time. And so we begin to see a part of what uh, teaches them and, and protects them at the same time. So examine yourself and, and do this daily. As I think about the, the, the purpose of discipline, what God is trying to accomplish, examine yourself. Am I bearing fruit? That's the first question. Am I bearing fruit? And start out with, remember we have two different types of fruit that we're talking about. First, am I loving and growing in love? Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I gentle? Am I faithful? Am I under self-control? To begin to look at these in your life. And it's really easy to say, well, of course I am. But no, 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 no. Look closer to see for sure that you're seeing evidence of it within your life. And as you begin to ask God that question, and you say, Lord, show me. You may actually come to your mind times in which instead of being patient, you're actually kind of snippy towards your kids or towards your spouse or towards your sibling. And you begin to see, I probably wasn't as patient and maybe that's me not following after the Spirit of God at that point to begin to, to look there. Pray, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Don't trust your own self-evaluation, but ask God. Is God, is it even conceivable that God would not reveal to you areas where you're living in sin if you ask Him? Imagine your child coming up to you and saying, um, why, why are you disciplining me? Can you imagine saying to your child, oh, go figure it out for yourself, right? There's a word for that. It's called, it's called horrible parenting, right? You just don't do that. That's just awful because then what's the point of the discipline? If they just got to figure it out for themselves. No, no, you explain it to them because you want to discipline them for their benefit so that they would learn and they would grow and be protected. And if we go to God and we say, Lord, why is this happening? Am I in some sort of sin? Show me my sin. God will honor that prayer. And He will show you the areas where you are failing Him and where He's bringing discipline into your life. Because His desire is not to discipline you. His desire is through the discipline to produce the the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. He wants to see that in your life. And maybe 
Maybe the starting point is the hardships in your life, the lack of fruit in your life is because you need to come to Jesus. Sometimes we talk about a come to Jesus meeting as a bad thing. I can't think of a better meeting, is there? And maybe what he's doing is he's saying, um, I'm showing you your sin and I'm not letting you bear fruit because I want you to trust me. And if that's the case in your life, I invite you to come to him today and ask him, Lord, forgive me of my sin and cleanse me that I may turn from it and turn to you. But maybe I've been walking with the Lord, but I just, I've just got my feet really, really dirty and I haven't washed them. And I need to come to Jesus and have my feet washed by confessing and by turning. That's what it is to understand discipline. That's our first step, to understand discipline. If we're going to bear fruit, I've got to understand discipline. The second is I've got to choose to cooperate with God's pruning. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You see, no fruit brings discipline. Fruit brings pruning. And sometimes they look similar, right? It's not a whole lot of fun to be pruned either, because then parts of me are getting chopped off. Well, wait a minute. (laughs) I didn't know I signed up for that, but I did. And that's not very comfortable. So we're going to look at that a little bit better by understanding what is pruning. Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica defines uh, pruning this way. It says, pruning in horticulture is the removal or reduction of parts of a plant, tree, or vine that are not requisite to growth or production, are no longer visually pleasing, or are injurious to the health or development of the plant. There's a whole lot of stuff in there, but if we stop and really look at it, let's apply that then to our spiritual lives. That God prunes our lives by removing or reducing parts of our lives that are not requisite to our growth or production, that are no longer visually pleasing to Him, or that are injurious to our health or development. Yeah, that kind of sounds what pruning is about, that God begins to do in our lives, to be able to produce more fruit. The, the Greek word that's used here is uh, kathairo, and uh, it's the word from which we get catharsis. You're familiar with that, right? What catharsis is, it's, it's the idea of a, a, a cleansing. Um, it's used in verse 2 when he says he bears that... Uh, no, that he prunes is where that's found. It's used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, where Jesus said, Blessed are the pruned in spirit, for they shall, or pruned in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. It's the same word that's used there. Isn't that interesting? It speaks of the idea of cleansing often, to be purified, to be cleansed. What does that mean? As I think about that, to have a pruned heart will allow me to see God. To have God remove everything that is not promoting fruit in my heart, for Him to take it all away, is to give me then a pure heart. A heart that's all His. Discipline removes something bad in order to produce good, which is fruit. Pruning remove something good in order to produce something better. More fruit. Romans 12.1 shows us the, the heart ready for pruning or experiencing pruning. When Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, 
acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Worship is that presenting to God my heart. Saying, God, I give you my whole body to do with what you want. I give up my agenda, my goals. I'm all yours. Produce your fruit in my life. And it allows him then to take away everything that does not promote fruit in my life. That's the call that Paul gives. He, he shows his own personal example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I've become a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow or fellow partaker of it. What is Paul saying? He's saying everything in my life, all of it, every bit of it, everything is for the purpose of bearing fruit, right? That's what he's saying. He wants a rich harvest in his life. He wants to bear fruit for God, and he gave up all. He was free, but he made himself a slave so that he might see fruit. He was not under the law, so he made himself under the law that he might win those who are under the law. To those who were without the law, who didn't even see the law, he pretended it, or acted as though he wasn't under the law, even though he knew that he was still supposed to follow the law of God. But he made himself that, not that he went off sinning in order to get their attention, but he wanted to give up all that he had, every good thing that he had, that he might gain something better, which is more fruit. That he might see more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what pruning is all about. We need to pursue more fruit in our lives. We see in verse 2 that they may bear more fruit. There's a law of inertia. Um, I, I did uh, write down the uh, law of inertia from uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. If a body is at rest or moving at a constant speed in a straight line, it will remain at rest or keep moving in a straight line at a constant speed unless it is acted upon by a force. A thing that ain't moving tends to not move unless something moves it, right? A thing that's moving keeps moving unless something stops it. Now, we, we find that uh, at, at, uh, in our lives, but if something is moving here uh, on earth, there's always a force against it, is there not? It's, it's air, okay? And the, the, the air is going to be acting against it, so it won't always keep going, and so things are going to slow it down. We apply this to spiritual life. In our spiritual life, if I'm not moving, I'm going to tend to not move unless there's some force that gets me to move, right? And we see it in our own life, when, when we become stagnant in our, in our faith and we're just kind of hanging out and we're just there, we tend to just keep hanging out there until something moves us. And as we're walking with Christ, we tend to be moving forward and, and keep moving forward until there's a force that stops us. Now the problem is, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil who are three forces who are trying to stop us all the time. Now, I've worked with a lot of churches. Um, I, was, I was just trying to count while I was preaching this earlier, and I, th I think I've been the pastor, I think, of four. I've been an elder of uh, more than that. Um, I've been in uh, at least three different presbyteries, um, and I've served at General Assembly, and, and in my service, I've worked with a lot of churches. 
um, in, on a lot of different continents, whether it be in Belize or uh, in, in some in Europe, consultation, some in, in Africa, and I've seen things going on. And one of the things I've seen is there is such a thing as spiritual inertia. It's true that a church that, that has kind of given up its energy and is, is backed away and is just kind of slowed down and is just barely moving tends to keep barely moving and then eventually to stop unless something pushes it. It's what happens. And a church that's moving really, really well keeps, to go, keeps going, but it's constantly facing the world of flesh and the devil, which are resisting it. And so we've got to continue to provide that force to keep it moving. It's essential. Because we see in our lives that we, we kind of like to avoid change. I'm probably not so much here in New York County, right? I mean, yeah, because... As uh, Daryl has reminded us on numerous occasions, we, we recognize that, that uh, we don't like change so much. And a part of that is, I always use the phrase, we get used to ugly. Right? We just do. And I remember a church in Arizona had a, a hole in the wall just as you, you came into the, the church. And it was there for like a year and a half. And all the people who were in the church got used to it. We didn't do anything about it because we were used to it. But every visitor would walk in and go, oh my, there's a hole in the wall. And it would throw them off. But we were used to ugly. So we were okay with that. And so that can happen even within our, our ministry, that we get used to our ministry. We get comfortable with our ministry. What we do is what we do. We get used to our spiritual life. We get, we get comfortable with our spiritual life. And, and it's just who we are. It's just what we do. And we just tend to rest there. And the law of inertia sets in. And we don't move until a force pushes us. I guess a part of what I'm hoping is as we meditate on, on John 15, it helps us to begin to, to evaluate even providence and to say, are there places where, where we've quit moving? Have we come to a stop? I want to be that force. I want to be a part of what moves us forward. As we come in, we're able to see things that need taken care of. And we can now help to take care of that. And the rest of us, when that force begins, can say, and I'm willing to cooperate with that, to see us as a church bear more fruit. You see, I hope that we as a congregation can come to the conviction that fruit is of greater value than comfort. I'd rather us see fruit than me be comfortable. And, and I said that in the first person on purpose. Because that's where it starts. And that's a conviction that I want to build more and more in my life. And I hope we can all build that. And I hope together we can say, Amen. We're going to keep looking. We're going to keep moving. And we're going to keep finding, no matter what happens for the rest of, of, of our life, as we're sitting with a congregation of 10,000 in about three years, we will still have that, that... I have a friend who said, that's what we're going to pray for, 10,000, because we could do 1,000 ourselves, but God alone can do 10. And I just love that man. That even so, we will say, and we will not rest upon our laurels, because we recognize spiritual inertia and we recognize discipline can come and we recognize that pruning is good and so we want to keep moving forward and seeing in advance. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 28, God created man and then he says this to them. And God blessed him and said to him, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is before man sinned. And man was supposed to bear fruit, right? That was his first command. Before multiplying, bear fruit. Be fruitful. How much fruit did God want him to have? Think about it. One man, one woman, one planet. He said, fill it. Right? Doesn't that sound a little bit like much fruit to you? <laughs> you know, I think so. I think that's, much, that's the very definition of much fruit. That's what God wanted from Adam and Eve. Much fruit. Even before sin, we were here to bear much fruit. And Jesus came and before he went back up to the Father, he spoke to his disciples and he said, Go therefore and make disciples of a couple nations. What did he say? What did he mean by all? All meant all? Like all, all. Not just all, but all, all, all. All of them? Does that sound like much fruit? Jesus' desire for his church is that we bear much fruit. <coughs> Jesus' desire for Providence Presbyterian Church is that we would bear much fruit. That we would have much love, joy, peace, patience. And we would have much influence over those that we minister to, to our children, that they will grow up to walk with Jesus Christ, to our neighbors, that they will see the love of Christ and come and believe in Him, to our, our state, to our nation, to the world, that we will have much fruit. To do that, we're going to have to understand discipline when it comes and cooperate with God's pruning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, thanks for giving us this word. I pray for this congregation and I ask for each one of us, O oh God, that you will help us to hear this message to us as individuals and that each one of us as an individual will stand up and be counted. Father, do your work in our lives. Where we have sinned, show us, O oh God, and uh, discipline us and, and bring change. And where there is good, O oh God, but it is not better, we pray that you will prune out the good and that you'll produce the better. Bless us, O oh God. Expand our ministry. Keep your hand upon us and keep us from evil that Jesus may receive more and more glory. Amen.